in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the CEO Rater Podcast. It's your host, John Mayetta. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. Please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Check us out online at ceorader.com, the only online destination where employees, customers, and investors may anonymously review CEOs and companies. And if you haven't, check us out at techtoday.com. It's still free. That's our tech blog publication. And the article I'm going to review today was posted to Tech Today on yesterday. And for the moment, it is still a free blog. It will be a premium publication in the coming weeks. So today's subject is around investor due diligence from the perspective of public company investors performing due diligence on public companies. And some of these rules hold for private companies as well. But these are some of the things I would look for when I was doing diligence on public companies and I was on the sell side. When I was doing diligence on M&A ideas when I was on the corp dev side. And some of these bits I may have picked up during my time here as an entrepreneur at CEO Raider, or uh, the principles may have been reinforced while here at CEO Raider. So three primary criteria for evaluating leadership teams or CEOs. And number one is quality of the leadership team, quality of the CEO. You've heard me talk about that before at length. And that's sort of number one on on this list. Number two is corporate governance. And number three is insider ownership. So in terms of quality of the the CEO, things that I'd like to see, things that would potentially make me want to go long a particular stock or maybe acquire a particular company. For example, I like CEOs that take the ultra long view. Outsized Outsized returns typically are generated when a particular CEO company uh, places a, a, a big strategic bet that's going to pay off not in the next several quarters or the next year, but over a period of years, a period of decades. Think about Amazon. They're a perfect example. And I'll go into some examples in a little bit of detail. Number two, CEOs that demonstrate courage, courage of their convictions. They're not afraid to stare investors down in order to pursue a long-term strategic goal or short-term strategic initiative, they have the courage of convictions to deliver bad news. Hey, there's this initiative I feel passionate about. It's going to pay dividends. In order to achieve this initiative, we're going to have to invest, which means pre-tax profit comes down, which means earnings come down for the next two, three, four quarters, whatever the case may be. But we should start to see signs of traction within the next couple of quarters. And we believe this is a strategic initiative that's going to help us outflank the competition and, frankly, leapfrog the competition. So highly strategic. Those are difficult conversations to have with institutional investors, but you've got to have them if you're passionate as a CEO about a particular initiative. CEOs that scale. It's critical to have CEOs that scale. CEOs that know how to build teams comprised of people that know how to build teams. In other words, each successive management team in the pyramid and each successive employee as you go down the layers of the pyramid needs to be able to scale. Effective employees need to be able to scale or risk not advancing their careers. And the fourth bullet point, CEOs that communicate effectively. Effective communicators, not to be confused with a person who is articulate. Just because somebody is hyper articulate does not mean that they are highly effective in terms of communication. So CEOs who effectively communicate leave no room for no room for confusion or ambiguity regarding internal communication or external communication. So there's a difference. It's subtle, but it's important. Here's some examples in terms of 
some of the elements that I just mentioned that would make me want to go long the particular stock, make me want to go long a management team, invest beside a management team. So Amazon, if you remember about a decade ago, investors didn't want the company to invest in national in national distribution. Every time they get close to profitability, uh, Bezos would say, "Hey, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna invest and uh, you know build a new distribution center." And over time, this network of distribution centers is going to be able to uh, is going to enable us to be able to deliver you know packages in a, in a narrower and narrower, smaller and smaller window. You know, essentially the holy grail being real time delivery. Received a lot of pushback initially, and then you could see what the outcome is. And not, Amazon's not not finished in terms of investing in distribution capability, but clearly the the fruits of the labor have started to pay off and will continue to pay off as they narrow the uh, and shorten the shipment window. The company takes a, a similar approach to other lines of business, for example, and I may have talked, I, I know I've talked about this before on, the, on this podcast, uh, Amazon's content business. You know, the typical movie, movie studio takes a five-year approach to its production slate of, of, of films. Netflix takes a 15-year approach. Amazon, a, a 50-year approach. And they're able to take these long-term strategic bets and long-term views of the business what I would say, ultra long-term views, because the company effectively creates new predictable revenue streams, which consistently grow over time. And as they grow, they enhance revenue visibility in the out years. And the more visibility you have into recurring revenue, the greater recurring revenue becomes as a piece of the total revenue pie. So in terms of percentage of total revs in terms of revs on an absolute basis. Recurring revenue gives you the ability to invest longer term, to take larger bets, to take larger strategic bets. And Amazon, of course, has done this by uh, bundling a variety of products and features into its Amazon Prime service. And every time a, a, a member subscribes to Prime for 100, 105 bucks a year, uh, it's just a, a, a further enhances Amazon's recurring revenue stream and enables it to do things that other competitors who have a, a, a more volatile top line may not be able to do. CoStar Group, one that I used to cover back in my investment banking days, uh, similar to Amazon investors. This would be in the, geez, I think they went public 1998. I cover them beginning in 07. But I remember it was always a story where investors would push back on the company. Why do you need to invest? How come you need to invest to build out your database capability in these new cities, so on and so forth? Same story as Amazon with its distribution capability today. CoStar is essentially Bloomberg for, for the commercial real estate market. The dominant player in information for commercial real estate. Not even close. And when I left the banking world coming out of the 08 downturn. So I left in 2011. I think CoStar at that time was maybe at about a, a billion-ish market cap. And today they're around uh, 10 billion of, of, of market value and, and uh, a similar number in terms of enterprise value. Netflix, if you remember Netflix, maybe five, six years ago, uh, Hastings wanted to uh, push into streaming OTT over the top. And, and migrate away from DVD. Um, investors pushed back on this. DVD business, highly profitable. Not a high growth business, but highly profitable. They wanted him to milk operating profits out of the DVD business. No, no, no. DV, uh, streaming is the future. And of course, today, uh, streaming is the present and the future. Uh, and, and Reed Hastings made the, the right bet there. What do Amazon, CoStar, and Netflix have in common? They each have CEOs who have courage of their convictions. 
And another thing that you'll find that they have in common, each CEO is a founder CEO, not a hired gun. On the short side, in terms of quality of the leadership team, so what I did here, and you'll see it if you check out the, the write-up at, at Tech Today, I created three groups of, of CEOs who I would want to certainly not invest in and potentially would want to go short. So category one, sleepy CEOs. This group of CEOs is slow to react. They're not proactive. They lack urgency. They're not innovative. A current day example would be the, the numerous CEOs and boards, for that matter, who are slow to address cybersecurity, right? which I've harped on. You've heard me harp on since we launched this podcast in August of 2017, particularly those in healthcare. Healthcare is just, it's an industry that is rife with um, sensitive personal data, PII data. And very few healthcare providers are protecting, securing their uh, sensitive patient data the way they should be. It's, it's just a fact. And they're asleep at the switch, they're, they're slow to react. Category two, satisfied CEOs. These are CEOs whom, if they meet or beat their earnings guidance, to them it's a win. Even if, if meeting or beating in the short term comes at the expense of harming the business in the long term. This CEO cohort is content to be average. Mediocrity is acceptable, perhaps even something to be proud of. They don't fully consider the opportunity costs associated with the status quo. Right, So they're not laying awake at night saying, you know, what aren't we doing? What could we be doing that could help us, you know, at a minimum, gain an edge in our competition, in best case scenario, potentially leapfrog the competition in a particular area? What aren't we doing that we could be doing that would delight customers? I'll give you an example on the, on the sort of the, the reciprocal of this. Uh, Amazon, somebody was clearly lying awake at night, or many people were, as Amazon was adding more and more uh, server capacity to its business to manage order flow and such, they noticed, hey, we have excess capacity. Wouldn't it be great if we could monetize this excess capacity? AWS, that was the advent of uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, the fastest growing business. Category three, the final category, stagnant CEOs. Stagnant CEOs don't invest aggressively enough for fear of upsetting institutional investors and or due to underestimating the rate of innovation required to delight customers. They may not know how to take their story to the street. They may lack the intellectual curiosity and or intellectual capacity required to truly innovate. So, you know, these are CEOs that, you know, they run a profitable business and they think the customer is going to be there forever. And because they're not paying close attention, because they're not intellectually curious, because they're not rigorous in terms of their... Uh, spending time with their customers and, and watching the market closely, they won't notice little nuanced shifts in the end market and the customer market. They won't notice that the customer is, is sort of shifting away from uh, their products and services and that their products and services are, are feeling pricing pressure as they become commoditized and that there are potentially massive structural changes in the market. Saw this with PNC Insurance. I lived through this at my former employer. I don't know that I'd categorize my former CEO as a stagnant CEO, but there was some some element of stagnation in the business in that we didn't fully recognize what was going on in the end market or we didn't fully appreciate the, the rate of change. And what happens is you get caught flat-footed. And what happens is 
you can get taken private, as the case, what was the case with my old employer, at a, at a valuation that's above the current pri- uh, public market valuation, but below an all-time high. You can have an activist come in and completely blow out the entire leadership team. Thankfully, I haven't lived through that. And I don't want to see that, but it happens. Um, so in, in, in these, these categories, sleepy CEO, satisfied CEO, stagnant CEOs, they're not mutually exclusive. You could have some overlap. Certain elements, certain characteristics for sure will be shared within the same person, within the same leadership team. The, the second category, so that was category one, quality of leadership team, quality of CEO. Category two is corporate governance. Uh, poor corporate governance obviously is a red flag against management. Uh, uh, if, if, if you want an example of, of poor corporate governance, think about non-voting share issuances. So I've talked about and written about you know, SNAP and its IPO in early seventeen. When 100% of the shares issued in the IPO were non-voting shares, meaning for every one share, the investor got exactly zero votes. Facebook tried something similar, not on its IPO, but last year where it wanted to issue non-voting stocks so that Zuckerberg could sell off a portion of his holdings and fund his charitable efforts while retaining uh, control from a, a vote standpoint. So he wanted to flood the market with uh, non-voting shares to dilute the votes that investors outside of the company would have, and shareholders, a couple of shareholders, filed a lawsuit, and, and so that that deal never happened with Facebook. But if you want to learn more about that in detail, with with the Snap case in particular, I, I posted an article a couple of weeks ago uh, on Tech Today. So remember, it's it's TechToday.com. Not going to be confused as a a another news source out there at TechToday.net. Ours is .com. Ours has been out there since uh, 2015. And the name of the article is Distracted CEOs in CEO Overreach. And further, I also posted to Twitter and to that article, I wrote a letter to SEC Chairman Clayton about non-voting share issuances and voiced my concern there. And my, and my point of view is that they shouldn't be allowed, frankly. And I, I, I fully appreciate that institutional investors should be aware of the risks and they are and but yet they you know willingly pull the trigger on some of this stuff and i suspect that if their institutional clients so the the, the state pension funds the retirement funds uh that write checks to asset management firms to invest if if the the clients understood how in fact some of these you know mechanisms work in the case of non-voting IPOs, they probably wouldn't want the the manager to invest in that offering, but they may not know enough to say in the fund mandate that we don't want you know uh, dollars allocated to non-voting share issuances. So I, I, I detailed that fact in my letter to SEC Chairman Clayton, and you could read that online. Um, Another example, recent example in the past few days, uh, Intel CEO sold stock through a 10B51 plan ahead of bad news. The stock sales was completed November 29th. And, you know, it's legal, but it's, it, it's, it's morally wrong. And I think it needs to be changed because it, it's, it, it's, it's not right. So what these 10B51 plans are, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a, a plan that a, a, an insider would, would set up to sell stock uh, automatically on, on, on certain dates. And, and that's allowed by the SEC, and that's fine. But what happens is 
you have certain CEOs, they know bad news is coming. You know, they haven't disclosed it publicly, but bad news is coming. And they'll set up a 10B51 and start, you know, executing sales through the 10B51 plan prior to disclosing the bad news. And so I would just like to see, you don't have to kill 10B51s, but it should be that if you're a named executive, if you're an insider, you're a named executive, you may not sell a portion of your holdings until you've filed an 8K disclosing any negative news, any material news, or uh, after the you know the quarterly report. So there should be a very tight window after uh, filing an 8K through which the the insider may may sell equity or you know sell any any instrument. But outside of that window, 10B51 or not, no trading is allowed. That would be my my suggestion to to fix it. And the last one is category three is insider ownership, and it just you know I don't know how many people this is news to, but you like to see insiders own some chunk of equity and not sell every vested option that they have and turn everything to stock the moment that the the, the security uh, vests, particularly with founder CEOs. You'd like to see founder CEOs retain a majority of their holdings, particularly in the early days. You don't want to see, a, let's say you have a CEO, he or she um, you know, owns however many shares, and they want to sell 25% or a third or half of their holdings on the IPO. It's, it's like a red flag. It's like, well, you know, if you feel so good about the company and you want to take it public, why are you selling half of your holdings or a third of your holdings the, the day it prices? Why not sell a couple points or sell nothing and sell, you know, 5% on, the, on a follow-on offering? And if you want to tell me, well, 100% of my net worth is tied up in the, my holdings, great. You know, wait for the follow-on offering and start to wind some of your position down and adopt a 10B51 plan. But, you know, if you're a, a founder CEO in year one, year two, don't unwind your entire position. It's just not, not the right thing to do. See you all next time.